This is The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth. Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Kevin Northup. The Weekender for Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Coming up this hour, the new leader of the Nova Scotia Liberal Party stops by our studios. Jacob Postawade speaks with Zach Churchill. Major funding for the 2024 Congrès Mondial Acadien. The Weekender was in West Pubnico for the announcement on Wednesday. And the Veterans Transition Network helps veterans adjust to post-service life across Canada. We get more information from Dan Merlin, coordinator for the Maritime Provinces. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Jacob Postelwaite. Happy to be joined now by our Yarmouth MLA, now and now the leader of the Nova Scotia Liberal Party, Zach Churchill. Thanks for coming back, buddy. Thanks for having me back on, Jacob. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to talk to you. Last time we chatted was before the election. Obviously, it went it went pretty well. So, uh, how's it going so far as the leader? Well, listen, man, it's it's uh, I'm really enjoying it. You know, it's a it's a it's a big responsibility. It, it requires some some sacrifices, but. I really believe in our political process, and I've been so fortunate to be able to uh, play a part in it for the last uh, 12 years, and I'm, I'm really energized to, to take it on at this level. I'm also excited this is the first time we've had a, a leader from Yarmouth, too, for any political party. Yeah, so, it really gets, gets our, our names out there, you know, well, puts, puts, uh, puts our issues. On, I mean, I know you, gotta, you have to focus now on the issues of the whole province, of course, but, you know, it puts our issues, you know, in a, in a, in a bigger light, bigger spotlight. Well, listen. If you if you forget about the people you represent and don't do your work as a local MLA, you won't be around long in this line of work. Uh, even if you're a cabinet minister or, or in a leadership position, so I've been very fortunate to have such incredible support from the people of this community who've just treated me with re- respect and kindness over the years, and I'm so proud to 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 represent them. And and that's my first job. My first job is to represent uh, the people of Yarmouth and to be the MLA for this area. And uh, secondary, it's is to be the leader of the party. Um, but, you know, having served in different cabinet portfolios, I did feel really ready to take this on. And I've come to, you know, learn how to balance those responsibilities, I, I think, in, in an effective way, at least. Yeah, so let's chat a little bit about that. Uh, because, uh, you know, like we say, you know, you're now responsible for not just this area, but now for the concerns of voters across the province so how does it feel for that change of responsibility well it's exciting you know i i i thought hard about going for it last time it opened up and i didn't and uh, this time it just felt like uh, i was called to do it and we ran a really great campaign it was a lot of fun and had uh, incredible support from from the party as well you know with a with a good a good solid win 65 percent of the voters uh, we're behind. Uh, we're behind our campaign, and that gives you some confidence when you when you step into the the shoes of, of leadership for sure. So, tell us a little bit about some of the work you've been doing since you've been elected leader. Uh, what have you been putting on your plate since then? Well, we've been back in the legislature. Actually, we got called back for. Yeah. Uh, it was called an emergency session. I don't think it was an emergency uh, at all. Uh, but we took the opportunity to uh really talk about issues that are affecting people right now how our healthcare system has actually gotten drastically worse under this government we've gone from being in a very challenging situation to facing near system collapse uh, across the board no matter what area you're in even in Halifax and we got to ask I, I personally got to ask the the premier questions on that uh, and debate him uh, on on the current situation with healthcare where we now have 105,000 people without a family doctor. When Premier Houston was minister, was leader of the opposition, you know, he said 60,000 people without a family doctor was a crisis. Now that there's 105 without a family doctor, he's actually said that the system's working remarkably well. So we've seen a big shift in in tone from the government, a real lack of appreciation, I think, for what's happening in the healthcare system right now and how decisions they've made have actually taken a challenging situation uh, and and made it worse. And we haven't seen them come through on any of the promises that they said they were going to uh, do when when they when they ran the, the election last year and we're coming up on their their year anniversary yeah, well and that's all well and good you know it's there are a lot of issues we are facing in healthcare and there's a lot going on but you know your party was in power for a long time before 
Tim Houston and, and the PCs. And I think we, I think we did a much better job managing the healthcare system. But we, those problems, of course, were they, these problems we're facing in the healthcare system, they weren't new problems when the PCs came in. The, so, the challenges you know. certainly aren't new. Um, they're up against the same challenges that we faced. Labor shortages. Um, less general practitioners getting into family medicine and the, the ones that do taking on less patients. Uh, certainly these are... And COVID, you know, they're facing the same challenges we had, uh, but they're making decisions very differently than we did. Mm-hmm. And that has an impact on, on healthcare outcomes. So we, for example, never had, never saw numbers like this for the need of family practice. It never went up to over 10% of the, of the population our, our whole time there. Uh, and we are the ones that brought in the tracking system for to to pay attention to the numbers and to try and bring those numbers down. We did bring them down for a period of years, and they did start to go back up last year. But what has happened since then and now uh, is that we relied very heavily on the advice of medical experts. Uh, Dr. Kevin Oral, who we brought in from Cape Breton, top surgeon in Cape Breton for orthopedics. Uh, Dr. Brendan Carr, we brought in to run the healthcare um, authority. Worked really hard to recruit him and, and surrounded these folks with other teams of healthcare professionals. Now, the Tories came in and fired a, a diverse, experienced board for the health authority. Uh, and Dr. Brendan Carr, who's one of the best medical administrators in, in the country, and replaced them all with uh, a partisan lawyer with no healthcare experience. Uh, we've now seen them do that with the other crown corporations. They've collapsed all the crown corporations who give out hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and, and not to say they, they, they should not have found efficiencies uh, uh, with those organizations, but how they've approached the governance of those organizations is they, they fired, again, the independent boards, CEOs with, including two leading female CEOs in our, in our province, Laura, Laura Broughton and, and uh, Jennifer Angel, um, who ran, who, who increased trade for Nova Scotia and who brought in the, the broadband plan uh, and replaced all of those folks with two people that the premier called personal friends, including a, a former business associate. So when you're making decisions on the governance of things, that has an impact on, on healthcare outcomes. And you and I have talked about it before, but not, like how the, the, the current government doesn't see the link between public health and the pandemic impacts to our healthcare system and healthcare outcomes. They just kind of a, treat those things as totally separate. And what happens when you do that is the healthcare system gets overrun with COVID, as we've seen happen this past year. We went from being the safest place to be in the country to the deadliest. And that puts incredible, an incredible amount of pressure on our healthcare system. So we're having people drop out of the healthcare system now. The labor shortage is getting worse because people are absolutely exhausted. They've dealt with wave after wave uh, of COVID. And the last year has been, has been exponentially the, the worst that the, that the system has seen. That impacts surgical wait times. They're delayed. It impacts uh, how many ERs are open. We've seen more ER closures than ever before. We've seen more people go to family doctor than ever before. We're seeing the labor situation get worse. So yeah, we were in government for eight years. Uh, I'm confident to look at the record we had there where we leaned on healthcare professionals, where we invested money in the right areas, where we took the advice of public health when it comes to pandemic um, management, uh, and where we never saw this level of of severity in healthcare delivery as we're, as we're seeing now. Yeah. And we can talk about these problems, of course, but we should also, you know, talk about some solutions and, you know, the election is still quite a ways down the road, uh, from right now, but you know, what would you do? And of course there'll be, it'll be a different situation then, but what would you do as premier to sort of fix these issues that you're pointing out? There's, There's two key things I think we need to focus on. Uh, one is protecting hospitals during waves of, of COVID. Otherwise, they do get overrun. Our ICU beds get filled up very quickly, and our ERs close down, and, and people are out sick. We had 800 staff members uh, over this last year out sick, uh, which means they can't deliver services. So you, you have to protect our hospitals. I think the best way to do that is to give people information on COVID and on hospitalizations. We've been asking for that. Uh, we used to report that daily and weekly in this province. They have now stopped reporting on, you know, COVID numbers and, and hospitalizations except for once a month. So I think people need to be informed. That's the best thing we can do right now is let people know what's going on. There's no harm in releasing the information. Well, it, it informs our decisions, right? right? As You know, we are in a point of this pandemic where 
it's we're we're not leaning on restrictions. We're leaning on people to uh, self manage this. Right. But to do that properly, people have got to have the information. They have to know when our ICUs are overrun and when the risk level is heightened. That's the easiest thing to do on that front. So connecting public health again to healthcare delivery. And our healthcare system is, is key, and also primary care access, like the the family doctor situation, which you know more than almost we've, we again eight years in government, never saw the numbers spike like this over a year for people that didn't have a family doctor. Not not once. We never we never got above, uh, never even came close to ten percent of the population being without a family doctor. So you've got to create. You have to look at the model of primary care and create new access points for people to take pressures off pressure off of our ERs. And to recognize the the, the new model uh, of family practice that that we have, uh, and not just in Nova Scotia but across the province. So I think you really ought to lean on uh, pharmacists a lot more to do prescription renewals, to order uh, blood work. Uh, every every community has a pharmacist. Not every community has a family doctor. So we really have to think of new entry points and access points for for right. primary care, and that'll take a lot of pressure off the the hospitals. <clears throat> for sure. Um, so we've talked a lot about health care. Um, another big issue, of course, is uh, the cost of living here in this province. And, uh, of course, the Premier has talked a lot about how we need to be working to try to make things more affordable for Nova Scotians. We need to, you know, work on bringing costs down. Uh, how do you feel about all of that on that side of things? I think they're really missing the mark on it. So the, the cost of living, the inflationary pressures are having a real impact on people's daily lives, on people's ability to particularly you know seniors on fixed income but also on young people uh who are coming into uh you know a a job market where there there are a lot of jobs there's a labor shortage but where debt uh interest on debt's very high so if you want to get a home uh that's going to be more challenging for younger people and the cost of everything is 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 going up Uh, and particularly it's an issue for for young people who are just starting out uh, their careers and, and seniors who are on, on fixed incomes. And we haven't seen anything of, of consequence, I think, happen from this government to look at this. And, and, and while, this in, while inflation impacts us individually, it's also having a collective impact on our province. We're heading towards a recession, according to the province's own budget and, and finance department. So we haven't seen a strategy around this issue. Uh, we, we, we have heard a lot of talk about, you know, we're... Um, we really care about this issue. It's very serious, but we, we have not seen anything tangible or strategic to deal with it. Like the only thing they've really done is increase taxes on people, you know, uh, folks that are buying, um, buying properties and now, now pay more taxes uh, when they're coming from, from outside of the province. That's, that's really the only major initiative that we've seen. Nova Scotia is already the highest taxed province in, in the country. This is a great time to look at our tax system. And to figure out how we keep more money in, in people's pockets, and, they, and when we were in government, we actually lowered the the income tax uh, threshold for people. But we uh, we have to look at our, our tax system again, I think, and ensure that uh, we're helping people keep more money in their pockets, so they can spend, and their spending power doesn't go down too much, and they can continue to keep our economy moving. Right. And uh, you actually you met with the prime minister last month. Uh, you guys had a, a sit down conversation. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and about you know of course the relationship between your party and the federal liberals we had a we had a very brief conversation he was in halifax and i really appreciated him making the time to chat with me our our in the in the small amount of time that we had we did focus on on health care um talked about how it's not just a money thing because i know all the provinces are now looking for more money from ottawa and uh, that's fine. We, we, we could use some more money from, from the federal government on this, but there's, you can, the healthcare system is in such a situation where you can throw all the money you want at it. It's not necessarily going to fix what you need to have fixed in it, uh, because we don't have people. There's a labor issue that we're dealing with there. So we did talk about that. We did talk about the impacts of, uh, the pandemic on our healthcare system, uh, and, uh, and the affordability issue. So I, the federal government in particular is very, I think, linked into the affordability pressures that people are facing and we might see some more i think initiatives come out from from the feds on on that one it's an interesting relationship you know with with the federal government because we are a provincial party um my my personal political philosophy philosophy doesn't always line up with with the prime ministers you know he's he definitely comes from kind of an, an urban central canada uh setting and a lot of his politics are kind of driven by um, by 
people's opinions on things in in in, in urban Canada. But uh, I, from a rural Nova Scotia, you know, I'm from rural Nova Scotia, and, and and sometimes have different opinions on on how we should approach things. But that said, we have a great working relationship, and uh, I'm sure that that will. Uh, continue and again right. you know when you're in opposition and don't have the strings of <laughs> you're not playing the strings of power in in the province having um allies and 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 partners in the federal government is quite quite helpful for sure and just wrapping up here uh you know i gotta have to ask how are you feeling about your party's prospects in the next election it's gonna be tough you know um we've got a lot of rebuilding to do uh i'm certainly not coming into this with with you know rose-colored glasses on. I know how challenging this is going to be. And, and the Premier, you know, has been fairly popular in year one, which which tends to be the case when folks are newly elected. But I do think he has some foundational challenges that he's up against. He made a lot of big promises on health care to fix it. More doctors, uh, 24-7 surgeries, more ER time, um, universal mental health care, and we haven't seen a movement, a better paycheck guarantee. You know, we promised people this. That was supposed to be happen on day one. We haven't seen any of these things uh, come through. And in fact, they have scaled back the mental health and addictions uh, programming that we had in place. We were supposed to, Yarmouth Regional, um, was we had budgeted to be a mental health and addictions hub. So more staffing, more resources coming into Yarmouth Regional for that. We know how much pressure is on the system from a mental health and addiction standpoint in this area. And uh, they said they'd be moving forward with that, and they haven't. They actually took Yarmouth off the list. I hope it comes up later on. But we, we're seeing them really fall behind uh, on health care and take a challenging situation and make it worse. And I think that's going to create a, a political issue for him and uh, a challenge for a lot of people across the province as they try to access emergency and, and primary care. So uh, I think if we have better ideas on health care, if we have a plan that we can actually execute on, and if we address these issues of affordability and uh, come up with a better economic plan for the province than the one that we see with the Tories where they just want to tax more and spend more, uh, I think we can be successful. Well, uh, a few years down the road, maybe we'll uh, see those ideas put into action. Zach Churchill, thanks so much for joining us today and uh, just chatting about your recent election and about some of the issues facing Nova Scotians today. Thanks so much here, and all the listeners have a great weekend. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. This past Wednesday, an announcement was made at the Village Historique Acadienne in West Pubnico about the 2024 Congrès Mondial Acadienne. It is the 2024 World Acadian Congress that is coming here to Nova Scotia, to Argyle and Clare, in two years. A major funding announcement, uh, Jeanette Pettipaw-Taylor, the minister for ACOA, announcing $4.6 million in federal funding. And of course, Argyle MLA Colton LeBlanc announcing $2.5 million in provincial funding for the event. We got to speak with Colton LeBlanc at the event, as well as several other who were in attendance on that sunny day. All right, here with uh, Colton LeBlanc, the MLA for Argyle. This is uh, a fantastic announcement today. Uh, lots of money from the province. $2.5 million? $2.5 million. $2.5 million from the province here uh, for the uh, Congrès Mondial Acadien in 2024. What does this announcement mean for your, re- for your region, for your riding? Uh, so uh, this is going to be a, a significant event for southwestern Nova Scotia. We're expecting upwards to 30,000 visitors uh, to, to this part of the province. Uh, and, you know, the, we can talk about the economic impacts that this is going to have, uh, you know, leading up and afterwards, upwards to $25 million. But it's important, of, of course, for the for the Acadian and Francophone community, uh, not only here in southwestern Nova Scotia, but across our province and the Acadian communities right around the world. Uh, so this is a, a true homecoming to the birthplace of, of Acadie. Uh, the last time this uh, Congress was uh, was hosted in, in the province was 2004. So 20 years later, uh, we, we welcome this uh, this international event back, uh, back onto our shores. A uh, Lots of work to do over the next two years. Uh, this event uh, will be here sooner than later, and uh, it's going to take some uh, some volunteers to make it work. But of course, uh, the hospitality and the dedication of volunteers in our, our part of the province will no doubt uh, come out to support. And as the provincial minister of Acadian Affairs and Francophonie, to to be here today to see everybody here, and so many people for this announcement. I mean, beautiful weather. The sun came out. And we hope it's like that in two years for this event. Uh, what does it mean to you to be here today? Yeah, this is a, it's a great uh, you know sort of a kickoff locally. Uh, of course, we've we've known for a couple years now that the World Acadian Congress will be here. 
uh, but of course there's lots of prep work and uh, just, so to see this uh, this revitalization in the in the pride of being Acadian in our in our culture and our traditions and our history is of course important and, and we'll see on on Monday on National Acadian Day a uh, a national event on the Dennis Point Wharf uh, with some uh, pretty big stars uh, entertaining uh, the folks there and I hope to see everyone there uh, so that'll be a true kickoff in southwestern Nova Scotia uh, for what's to come in 2024 and, and personally I'm very excited to, for, for what's uh, what's going to happen in, in two years' time, right? And, and you know, I've heard you talk about this event before. So now that it's here, it's getting closer. I know two years is a long time. What needs to be done, you know, to plan for for this kind of event here? Yeah. So it, this event differs than uh, two year, or twenty years ago, where the, the congra was right across the province. This is isolated uh, to the municipalities of, of Clare and, and, and of Argyle. And of course, you know, I mean, we're there's going to be some spinoffs and, and impacts on on Yarmouth, uh, the municipality of Yarmouth, and the town of Yarmouth, and neighbor municipalities uh, because of course you know uh, availability of, of, of accommodations for example it is it, it will be a, a pressure but that's something that's been factored in uh, and of course all the events and we're looking at you know uh, opportunities of, of in, uh, that, that you know facilities like the village historic here uh, can can uh, improve their their area and their space to welcome this world-class event and, and folks uh, from around the world back uh, back here well Colton thanks so much for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of the day it's my pleasure, thanks. Here with Argyle Warden Danny Muse in this beautiful day in West Pubnico talking about the uh, Congre Mondial Acadian coming here in 2024. $250,000 from Argyle, $250,000 from Claire. Part of this announcement today. First of all, what does it mean to you to be here today? Oh, it's excellent to, to see. I'll, I'll tell you what was great today. Great today was the, the uh, uh, announcement from the federal and from the provincial because these, these events take a lot of money to to organize i mean it, it's it's uh it's an event that 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 although it only lasts uh uh nine days it's still an event that that takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, uh um, organizing events and whatever else so this is this is just great and knowing that in just two years i mean this is, when we started this we said well we've got five years to do this so we kind of relaxed and of course COVID hit and here we are and we're we're we, we have we have to to speed up on our on our on organizing we've only got two years to do this but it, it's it's great to, to to see the uh the announcements from both federal and 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 municipal governments and we hear the music here in the background and this is kind of what people are going to expect when they come here in 2024 the acadian culture on full display you see it here at the village just a beautiful spot um, you know, are you looking forward to welcoming the world here to the Tri-Counties? Oh, definitely. I mean, you, you, you see people, we, we met, we had this in, 20, in 2004, and the people that we saw coming here from, a lot of people from Louisiana, and, and a, lot, a lot of the families down here met family members, and not maybe uh, uh, a close family members, but, but descendants of your family. And it's so great to, to show our culture and share it with, with people from outside. This is great. So uh, as I mentioned, you know, a lot of work will need to be done over the next couple of years. Uh, so what's that process look like for Argyle and their role? Well, our role is, see, we, we, we take part in some of the meetings, but we have an organizing committee. And they're basically the, the working force to make sure that this is a success. Uh, we still we have members of, of both Arc Island and uh, and Clare that that are on these committees, and so we we take part. I mean, we, we we do our part to make sure that this is going to be a success. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we can't wait for two years' time. Danny, thanks for your time, and uh, best of luck uh, leading up to this event. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to to uh, to, for, to have you guys here to uh, uh, cover these events for sure, and and uh, we're looking forward to 2024 as well. Thank you. So here with uh, Claire MLA Ronnie LeBlanc, uh, what an announcement today for the uh, Congre Mondial Acadienne 2024. We've known it's been coming for a while. Now we're two years out and a big announcement today. So uh, you see the announcement from the provincial government coming in, uh, you know, pretty good 2.5 million, 4.6 from the feds. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts today as we are two years away from this event? Well, it's pretty exciting. I mean, being, uh, having the Congress in Clare Argyle is uh, a big deal for us. We've seen what the Congra did in 2004. I certainly 
saw like the youth in our community uh, you know prior to the Congress there was always a little bit of uh, I, I wouldn't say shyness but people were more introverted and you know the Cogra brings out a lot of you know la uh, fierté acadienne if I could say it in French so I think this is going to be great for the area so the funding absolutely is necessary I think there's a great organizing committee I think uh, The, the relationship between Claire and Argyle is strong and will get stronger as we get closer. And I think, to me, that's really exciting. And big, too, to have, you know, their own ridings back, too, Argyle and Claire. You know, their own independent ridings here uh, for the province. And that, you know, I know you guys work well together, even though you're on opposite yeah. sides. Yeah. You're working well together uh, on this, for sure. So, uh, And you're somebody that champions youth in the community and champions the Acadian language and culture yeah. being preserved. So how, what will this event go towards in that regard? I honestly think for the youth, a lot of where that, that fiarte, that, that being proud of the language comes from the artistic side, like musicians, writers. We've seen it coming out of the Congra 2004, where we've seen a lot of musicians uh, writing, singing in, in the Acadian language. Tibilivo, we'll see that on the 15th here at the, at the concert. And I think coming out of the... 2024 Congress. I think that's just going to spiral. That's going to create more, more uh, artists, more young people interested in their art, uh, culture, their heritage, and I, I just see it as a huge, huge positive. Huge positive. And you mentioned uh, National Acadian Days coming up on Monday, yeah. the 15th, and a national concert across yeah. you know, national TV here in Canada and in, in Pubnico here in this area. So, uh, you know, did you ever think you'd see that, I guess, is my question to you. I mean, that's an amazing thing to have happen. No, absolutely. And and again, I think it's... Uh, we, we're fortunate in Clare and in Argyle to have a lot of strong cultural groups that have really over the years and especially since the last Congress uh, really pushed to promote and, and safeguard our language and our culture and I think this is you know, honestly a culmination of many years of hard work leading up to the next Congress which will hopefully you know push us forward even that, that much stronger so I, I can't emphasize enough like For us to survive as a culture, the youth have to really feel a, a sense of belonging. And for them, a lot of it is true, you know, every, their everyday interactions, the language, the music, their friends. It has to be part of who they are, and I think this is what the Congress and the concert we're going to see on Monday, that's what it does for us. Claire MLA, Ronnie LeBlanc, thank you so much for your time, and we're enjoying this beautiful day here. Uh, we'll enjoy it in two years as well. Absolutely, thank you. So here with West Nova MP Chris Dontremont at the uh, Village Historic Acadian in West Pubnico. What a day we have, and uh, we're talking about the uh, Congre Mondial Acadian in 2024. Um, $4.6 million from the federal government here. Uh, lots of money being put toward the event. What does it mean to you to be here and, and to see you know, the support for this? Well, I mean, the Congress Mondial is always something that's been important to, to Acadians. I mean, it's been around for 30 years now. Um, we did get to host it back in 2004, uh, which was a you know, across the province kind of event, you know, now we're going to be able to do it just in Clare and Argyle, which I, you know, to me is the core of Acadian culture here in Nova Scotia, which is in the riding of West Nova. So it's important. Um, I'm glad to see the investment that's coming from the federal government and the provincial government and the municipalities. It's an expensive thing to put on, uh, but I, I'm very hopeful Uh, that everything's going to be done within two years because it all happens in two years' time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the pandemic certainly might have slowed things down there a bit. But, yeah, two years, it's a lot of planning to do, and a lot of people will be coming here to Nova Scotia for this. Yeah, I mean, normally this is a five-year project, and uh, here we are two years to the date that we've all got to get things done. But I'm, I'm very comfortable knowing that we have a good committee, we have a good executive director. Um, they've done it before, some of them. They were here in 2004. Uh, I was lucky enough to be minister back at that time. Uh, you know, Acadian culture shined. You know, we were important. We brought we brought forward the National Acadian Day. That came because of 2004 and the Concord Mondial at the time. You know, the, the, the francophone services that we receive in government departments happened because of the Concord Mondial. So I'm hoping to see those retombés, those, 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 those legacy things that are left over, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, being Acadian, whether it's francophone, whether it's part of the culture, but it's sort of to have, you know, uh, to, be, to be comfortable in what we are today. 
and you know talking about the youth that will you know see this and and the preservation of the Acadian culture too that's always so important uh, you know for the youth to make sure that uh, that language and the culture is being protected yeah we talk about history but you know this is what we are today you know the Pubnicos the Clares the, the, they're they're all here you know and have been here for almost 400 years and we should not only teach it in school but we should also remember that you know we need to protect it for the future you know language is a tough thing but we need to be able to protect that language for the future exactly and uh and you know one final thing just how much are you looking forward to to this in two years time uh, a lot of people from louisiana will be here that's always uh, popular what and you're looking forward to it i'm looking forward to it it's it was something that i really enjoyed in 2004 to experience the openings of the closings and and all the community meetings in between the family meetings it's 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 something to be actually be a part of it's a, it's a very interesting thing but also to share with those folks those cajuns from from louisiana some french people from france and they're, they're going to be from all over the world here and that's going to be great to be able to to host West Nova MP Chris Dontremont here in uh, West Pubnico, on site. Not in the studio this time, on site. We like it. Yeah, we're actually in person, live. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much. And you've been listening to sounds of the 2024 Congrès Mondial Acadien announcement in West Pubnico from this past week. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. Helping our veterans is certainly very, very important, and an organization that dates back nearly 25 years and has uh, operations here in Atlantic Canada does just that. They're called the Veterans Transition Network, and this is a national network, but again, uh, we're talking about the Atlantic provinces here, specifically uh, Nova Scotia, with uh, the operations coordinator for uh, the Atlantic provinces here, Dan Merlin, on the line with us this morning. Uh, Dan, good morning. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yes, thanks for uh, giving me this opportunity to be able to reach out to the veterans uh, in the in the western part of Nova Scotia. Absolutely, it's our pleasure. We always, uh, you know, like to talk about uh, you know veterans and uh, the programs that are offered for them. We've uh, spoken at length with uh, Andre Boudreaux of the Wedgeport Legion about some of the local uh, programs that have been offered here, but this one, uh, you know, certainly can reach, like you said. Uh, Southwest Nova Scotia and uh, the veterans here. So, Dan, first off, uh, for yourself, just a little bit of a background about you, uh, you know, and you becoming operations coordinator for uh, the Veterans Transition Network, if you can. Yeah, Roger that. Uh, so I joined uh, I joined the Canadian Armed Forces out of uh, Gagetown, New Brunswick, back in 1976 uh, as a 17-year-old because uh, I couldn't find a job back then. And uh, so my dad sort of pointed me uh, to, towards the military. And uh, so I joined up. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I did 18 years in the regular force. And then I had sort of gotten out because I sort of lost uh, lost a little bit of focus or something like that. And then I came back and joined the, the, the reserves full time. And then I subsequently did 19 years full time reserves. And these were from bases, you know, from Gagetown all the way through to the West Ontario, all the way out to Vancouver Island, uh, to Victoria, and then back again to Shiloh, which is the home of the artillery. And that was the trade that I was into. Um, and then afterwards, I, I got out in 2014. But prior to that, uh, my last job, one of my last jobs before I got out, I was working for a new unit called the IPSC, Integrated Personnel Support Center, which back in the, you know, 2010, 2009 era, they started, uh, the D&D realized that we're, we're having difficulties dealing with, you know, troops uh, becoming medically unfit or or having serious injuries, limb loss or something like that. And how do we sort of, you know, take care of these people and help them transition sort of out of the military? So D&D had a, had a program set up for that. And I was in charge of one of those programs in Shiloh where you try to help these veterans out, you know, either through education or retraining or just, you know, help them move back to where they where they want to go back to. And so that sort of gave me an indication of, of what, you know, which way D&D was working towards. But at the same time, uh, myself, I was struggling. Uh, I didn't realize that I, I served in Afghanistan in 2010, 2011. And uh, a couple of incidences popped up or whatever it is, and I ended up going to see a PTSD uh, specialist that was flown into Afghanistan for six weeks. And I didn't realize that I was flying on the same plane with this gentleman until an incident happened. And then I went for an interview and, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, to, to meet up with him. And he looks at me and he goes, and, and after I've been in to see him two or three times while I was still, you know, serving in Afghanistan, he goes, Dan, he goes, uh, 
you know, you got undiagnosed PTSD stemming back from 2001, 2002 on one of my last trips to Bosnia. Well, holy mackerel, well, what a revelation to hear about that um, because I wasn't sure why I was angry. I wasn't sure why I had anger and frustration and stress and insomnia and all this other stuff, you know, sort of all compound on top of you. But to have a, you know, to have a clinical therapist tell you something, you know, go through all this and say, hey, you know what, you you have PTSD and that needs to be treated. So uh, on, upon my return in 2011 from Afghanistan, I, I went into the mental health system with D&D and uh, subsequently went to uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, where they have a operational stress injury clinic for veterans called Deer Lodge. And that's where I started seeing my therapist and uh, started working on trying to, you know, deal with this stuff. And so we did that from 2011 till 2015 when she turned around and she she uh, she pointed out that there was this new organization that she heard of called the Veterans Transition Network. And it might be something that I might be interested to, to, to attend. And I said, you know, I said, if there's anything out there that can help can help me deal with all these these situations that I'm in, I said, why not give it a shot? So I, uh, I attended with uh, intrepidation when I first took my program in 2016, because first of all, I was there with four other military uh, military veterans, but also two other uh, RCMP veterans that had already been retired for 25 years. And I met these two young clinicians or these two young therapists. And of course, me being very judgmental, being in the military, and this will resonate with a lot of military people, is we're very judgmental when we, you know, we come into a group with uh, with doctors and clinicians or whatever. We're kind of leery about that until you sort of get to know them. And uh, so anyway, my first comment to myself was when I looked at these two doctors, I said, so what are you two young fellows going to be able to do for, you know, a, a, an old dog like me or whatever it is. And uh, so we started the program at that time it was a 15 day program over, over four or five different, uh, four or five weekends. And uh, after the first weekend, as I seen how we sort of gelled and bond together and they started presenting the tools that we're going to use to deal with some of these issues or whatever it is. Uh, it was like a, it to me, it was like a, a, a glass wall had started to crack and then subsequently, at the end of the program, that glass wall finally came down, and I, I was being understood, and I was being, I was given help, and I was, uh, I felt, I felt in a place where, with other veterans and RCMP veterans, that I was in a safe space to be able to, you know, just talk about some of the issues that that I was dealing with, and that was the spark, that was the catalyst for me to say, put my hand up and say, even after the first weekend, I I need to be a part of this this organization. Um, because it, it it truly does work, uh, you know. And I don't want to call don't want to call it magic, but it's the tools and the the way the program is set up and designed to help us as veterans to be able to talk to you know talk this our traumatic events out with other people that are sitting there sort of holding space or listening to what's going on, and you're not being judged, right? And uh, that was the that was the biggest thing. And so subsequently, after I took my program. I asked uh, if I could become a part of this organization and they said, well, Dan, now you just took your first program, uh, the veterans transition program. Now you got to go work on yourself and you got to, you know, take the new tools that you have and work on it. And uh, we'll call you in about a year or so or whatever to see where you're at. And then about a year later, they called me up and said, Hey, uh, you still interested in being a paraprofessional with this program? So the paraprofessional are veteran graduates of the VTN program that are asked to come back to be the link-in between the two clinicians and to be the link-in to the, the, the vets that come there to say that, yes, we've done this program and this is what it's done for me or helped me and we're hoping that it'll do the same for you. So then I became a paraprofessional from 2016 to 2020 I did six or seven programs in Manitoba, two or three programs in Saskatchewan, because that's where I was living at the time. And then my personal uh, my personal life uh, circumstances had changed. So I ended up uh, coming down here just prior to COVID. And I indicated to VTN that I was I was down here um, and just in case they needed paraprofessionals, you know, for the programs that they run here in in, uh, eastern Canada. And then last July, I was given a, an opportunity. I was asked to apply for the operational, the Atlantic operational coordinator's job. 
And uh, I had to go through a series of interviews and and uh, some other Zoom uh, board calls or whatever it is. And I got selected to be uh, the operations coordinator. And this is where we're at now in August of 2022. Dan, it's been so interesting there to hear your story. And first of all, uh, thank you for your service, uh, really. And, uh, you know, just an, an amazing story for you and a lot of resilience there. And, and to hear that you had that diagnosis of PTSD and you didn't realize, you know, you know, you know, back then, back in the, you know, early 2000s or even in the 90s, was was yeah. PTSD even something that was really talked about much? No, uh, I, I, I don't. We, there was no label for it, uh, Kevin, at the time, because we didn't know what it was. And then I, I did go to go to the military doctors and say, Hey, listen, you know what? Here, here's here's some of my symptoms. You know, I've got depression. I've got I've got pain. I've got insomnia and I've got loneliness, you know, and, uh, and, you know, back at then I was, I was getting into the bottle of alcohol and, you know, feeling anger and shame because you, you know, you're broken, but you don't know, you don't know why, or you don't know how it happened. Right. Because mental health now, as, as you know, now mental health has really come to the forefront over the last two or three or four years. And, uh, and then with the VPN's help, being able to just sit there and, and talk about it, amongst other people or other veterans that have similar have similar stories or issues and to be able to talk about that and then have the clinicians clinicians come back to you and say okay this is how we're going to talk about this and we're going to work with this and this is how we're going to move forward well it sounds like it's you know just amazing how far uh, it's come, Dan, and and for you, you're now operations coordinator for uh, the Atlantic provinces here, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, uh, PEI, and Newfoundland. So, uh, in your work here with the Veterans Transition Network, uh, what are you finding you're seeing the most of here in the Atlantic provinces as far as helping those veterans uh, make that transition? Um, the, the 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 biggest, I think, my biggest challenge here is 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 reaching out to the veterans, right? Like reaching out to those people that are in rural communities, like such as yourself out there in Yarmouth, let's say, and 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 uh, letting them know that there's programs and resources out there, and for them to call or get a hold of us. Now that and there's some, we'll talk about probably talk about it at the end, but how how you get in touch with me or with the BTN or whatever, but. As you mentioned at the top of the at the top of the the top of the story here, like uh, Mr. Boudreau, uh, I met him. Uh, it took me a while to to connect here with the Royal Canadian Legion, which I'm also a member of. When I was back in Manitoba as well, I was a the service officer, and to reach out to the legions because I know the legions. That's their job is to look after and help support veterans, and provide them the tools and the resources, you know, to, to get them to move forward or to get them to become better. So using that and, and, uh, and the, rec- I don't, I don't like using the word recruiting, but the, the reach out to prospective, you know, veteran clients to let them know that we're here for them um, because it's like everything else, uh, you know, until you sort of put your hand up and say, hi, I'm Dan Merlin and I have a problem with uh, you know, with PTSD or alcohol or whatever the case is. You know, people don't want to move forward. And also the second part is they're really skeptical. Like I mentioned to you in my my previous story, where I was very judgmental on these two civilian um, therapists to see how they're going to help out an old crusty soldier like me. And it turns out that it actually worked. So that's the thing. And reaching out to people and so, and like you said, sometimes they might not be ready to yeah. accept that help. But this is an option for them, at least. And, and, and like we said, this is not just in this area. This is nationwide, uh, too. And you've been across Canada. You, you've seen this, you know, over the years, for sure. And, and uh, as you said, this is a program that's, that's helped you out in the past. But uh, you were talking uh, to me, actually, before we went on the air, about uh, the origins of the Veterans uh, Transition Network. It originated around, what, 25 years ago in B.C.? Correct. Yeah, back in 1998. Yeah, uh, by two doctors uh, from from the University of British Columbia. You know, sort of sort of took the bull by the horns and realized that there were some issues here, and they were keenly interested in being able to you know talk to some of these World War II veterans. Because when I do briefings for the VTN uh, through the Royal Canadian Legions and stuff like that, that's that's one of the first things I look out for in the audience to see if we still have any World War II veterans you know, in the audience, and I make a special sort of pitch to them and say, hey, 
you know, Jack or Bob or whatever, the, what happens to be their names or whatever is, you know, back when you came back in 1945 or 46 or 47, I said, were there any programs or anything, knowing full well what the answer is going to be, you know, absolutely nothing, right? So these people had to come back from either World War One, World War Two, and for that matter, Korea, like a lot of our veterans come back and there was, there was nothing there for them. Like there was no, there was no organization, there's no support or anything like that because it was still all unknown. Right. And so we, we used to just label that as shell shock, you know, Oh, there's uncle Jack. And yeah, he's a world war two veteran. Like you know, leave him alone when he's drinking over there because we think he's got shell shock or whatever it is. So that was the label that was put on these, these people, you know, back then. And now to be able to go back and talk to them and say, Hey, we have an organization here. And, uh, you know, to help you out to, to be able to, you know, deal with some of this stuff or whatever it is. And I think that's truly, truly the most amazing part. And hence the reason why, you know, I'm part of this organization. It's it's a very, very important organization. And, and like those soldiers, like you mentioned, coming back from World War II, uh, yeah, they didn't have those programs back then. It was, I guess, just a byproduct of society and the way things were. Uh, in right. those days, we didn't really think about, uh, you know, about that, what they would have to deal with when they come back. But now this program uh, is certainly in place. And, uh, you know, there there might be some veterans here, like we said, um, listening and wondering, uh, you know, how they can get involved with such a, a fantastic program. Do you know roughly how many, you know, uh, veterans that you've helped out with this transition network in the Atlantic provinces? Uh, I knew you were going to ask me that question. Um, so I want to say, like, through all the data that I went through and the spreadsheets and stuff like that, I'd say we've, we've helped out close to, you know, close to four or 500, you know, veterans over the last, well, since 2013. So that's, that's a significant number when you look at it. And then we're still being asked um, through census and stuff like that, you know, how many veterans we actually still have here in Canada, you know, even going as far back as World War II, right? So, I mean, uh, uh, the World War II veterans are slowly, you know, they're up there in age, they're in their late 80s, early 90s, or possibly 100, right? And some of them, you know, have been dealing this on their own or whatever the case is. But, and again, most of them in the rural communities, uh, you know, not being able, may not have access to the internet or may not have access to anything else, but just to, even if they're listening to the radio to say, hey, here's a, here's an organization out here that uh, that's here to help you. And everything's free, you know, like we, we, we get them to come uh, to, to join the program. We take them to a retreat. We, you know, we house them, feed them, and, and the whole program is five days. And uh, we look after all that, you know, logistical stuff for them so they don't have to worry about anything. They just either now they can either drive there, we can fly them there or we can have somebody drive them there or somebody support them to go to these programs. Because a lot of them, like I said, it's it's uh, it's about where their state of mind is at that time. And there a lot of them are very, very skeptical when it comes to, you know, these kind of programs or whatever it is, because they they're not sure how it's going to help them out. Right. And uh, and so that was kind of my next question and following on those guidelines. If somebody, you know, does want to reach out for help, what's the process they they go through and, and what can they expect, uh, you know, with the vans, the Veterans Transition Network? Yeah. And so there's there's multiple ways. One, like a, like if they if a lot of the younger veterans, of course, have access to the Internet. So the first thing they always do is that a lot of them will 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 punch up in the Google search. They'll punch up, you know, anything to do with veterans or just put in veterans. And then two lines would come up when you Google veterans. It'll come up either Veterans Transition Network and then Veterans Affairs Canada. And of course, two different separate organizations, uh, of course. And then, but the, when the VTN does come up, they'll see the website and then they can go in there and click on the link to say, you know, I'm interested in a program and I'm down here in Atlantic Canada. So that's one way how I get it. I get it through our corporate office out in Vancouver. They'll send me the, uh, the, the question from somebody from Atlantic Canada. Then I reach out to that person and uh, say, hey, you know, this is who I am. And the second part is, of course, through the legions. I've been trying to, like I said, I've been opening the doors with the legion here, uh, the Royal Canadian Legion for Nova Scotia. And I just had a, like, so when I met Andre, that would have been two, you know, about four months ago when I met him and his own commanders for Western Nova Scotia, because I had to get the authority from the Nova Scotia command to be able to reach out and talk to the legions to say, hey, here's a program and here's some digital material or here's some posters to put on the wall and on the boards 
because each legion has a service officer. I'm not aware, uh, not sure if you're aware what a service officer does. Uh, each legion has a service officer, which if a, if a veteran come into the legion and said, hi, you know, I'm Dan Merlin and I'm a veteran and I need help. Can you help me out or whatever it is? Well, it's the service officers for each of these local branches that I'm trying to reach out so that if they hear of veterans that need help, again, we're another resource for them, you know, so it could be a, it could be a relay from, from the veteran to the service officer to me. And then the third way, of course, is my, my name and number. Uh, you can, I can give you that whenever you want it so that they can reach out to me and ask me questions. And I think about 70% of my, uh, not again, not recruiting, but 70, 70% of, of the people that call me are people say, well, I heard you're, you're part of this VTN. And then they do the same thing that you're doing to me right now is just ask me questions about the program. And then they ask me if I've done this program and where, where, how did it, how did it affect me? And where, where am I today? Well, this is all fantastic information. And uh, for veterans that don't know this exists, hopefully, you know, listening to this, they, they now know and maybe they want to contact. So we will, uh, Dan, get those contact details from you. How can uh, folks get involved there? Yep. So again, uh, so if they want to call my number. So my number is 902-448-3572. That's 902-448-3572. That's, uh, that's my direct line to myself. And they can text or they can email me at uh, dan.merlin at uh, VTN, vtncanada.org. Yeah, I have to think about that for a sec because I don't email myself that often. <laughs> yeah, it's dan.merlin at uh, vtncanada.org. So that's how you can get in contact for the Veterans Transition Network. Uh, Dan Merlin has been our guest uh, this morning on the Weekender. Thank you so much for your time and and explaining this program. This is something that uh, I wasn't aware about either until uh, our good friend Andre brought it to my attention. So it was great to reach out to you and, and learn more about this. And hopefully this will help a lot more uh, veterans with that transition, you know, away from uh, – you know, away from service, away from the battlefield, and back into their regular lives. Right, right. And uh, just a, just another thing to add on there, Kevin is is Andre's inviting me out to a couple of the legions out there on the on on the western shore, and we're just waiting to set that up sometime in you know September, October, in the fall, so that I can come out and meet some of the actual legions and do a face to face with this. So I'm sure Andre will be setting something up, and I'm just waiting for his call to to come out and do that. Mm. Well, after hearing the, your story today, Dan, I'm sure lots of people will be eager to meet you down here. So we look forward to to seeing you, and uh, we wish you all the best uh, with this program. Awesome. Well, thank you very kindly for taking the time out of your day to, to interview me, and this has been great. Dan Merlin, the Operations Coordinator for uh, the Atlantic Provinces for the Veterans Transition Network. And that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. For story suggestions or to submit feedback, email news.cjls at radioabl.ca or call our newsline at 902-749-1919. To listen to archived versions of our program, visit us online at cjls.com and click on The Weekender. The Weekender is a production of the Y95 Newsroom and is brought to you by Aris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center.